0: Hi everyone, my name's Johnny McCormick, and you're listening to Spoke. This week on the show, I am joined by one of North Belfast's finest sons, Tony McAuley. Tony is a prolific author, having written four memoirs about his childhood and young adulthood, growing up during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Each of Tony's books share his ordinary experiences coming of age in an extraordinary time. Tony's first book, Paperboy, is about to be launched in the next few days, I believe, as a musical. And as if all that wasn't enough, Tony is internationally respected in the fields of peacekeeping and leadership development. More locally, Tony is a broadcaster appearing regularly in the media and a keen suicide prevention advocate. During our conversation, Tony talks about the impact of one of his personal heroes, Gordon Wilson, shares some of his experiences growing up, including the moment when he came to realise that nonviolence was the only way, and shares his love for Olivia Newton-John. Before we get into the show this week, I do have one more thing to ask, and that is to please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. That's the best possible way to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you're enjoying it, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, without further ado, let's get into conversation with Tony McCauley. Tony, thanks so much for um, taking the time to appear on the podcast today. Really good to have you here with us.
1: It's great to be here, Tony. Thanks for inviting me to be part of your podcast.
0: No, really, really excited that um, that you've made the time. So, Tony... I think a lot of our listeners will probably have some awareness of who you are, um, maybe read one, two, or all of your books, um, like I have, which are great, by the way. Thank you. Um, But what I always like to do is, especially for someone like you that's got your finger in many different pies and so many different facets of your life and lots of things going on, is give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. So how do you go about introducing yourself to people, Tony? Like, How do you typically describe yourself?
1: Well, um, my Twitter handle says that um, I'm a retired paperboy, so I am. So no matter what else I've done in my life, I think that's how, how most people think of me as a, a wee Belfast telegraph paperboy back in the 1970s. But, you know, in terms of how I would describe myself, I suppose I, I, I would see myself as a, an author primarily, but I'm also a, a peace peacebuilder. Um, I'm a, a leadership development coach, And um, I'm a suicide prevention advocate, and I suppose those as a broadcaster, I suppose those would be sort of the kind of main things that I would mention if I was, you know, meeting somebody in the elevator and they're asking me, "Who are you? What do you do?"
0: Yeah, sure. So imagine um, you've just got out of the elevator with that person, then, and uh, they're really interested in all of those things, and they asked you for a coffee. How would you go into a little bit more detail about things like? Your broadcasting, or your leadership development, or suicide prevention—like, what's what's going on behind that a little bit more, Tony?
1: I suppose a lot of it has roots in my youth. Um, so the broad, in the broadcasting, I did a media studies degree at university. So when I, I, I write all about this in all Growed up, the the third book, um, and I wanted to be um, either Terry Wogan or Steven Spielberg. I couldn't. I couldn't decide between the two, and so I did media studies degree. And um, but as it happened, then when at that time I got involved as a volunteer, as a student, in uh, in community projects and youth work during the summer. And um, ultimately, I went into that field in terms of youth work and community development and conflict resolution. Uh, rather than going into broadcasting as my main career, but I've always done a little bit of broadcasting um, on the side, if you like. I, you know, for many years I was a presenter on downtown radio, uh, at Northern Ireland's commercial radio station. Um, I, I, I did that for about ten years, you know, presenting various types of programs there. Um, but really, it's probably for the past fifteen years. I've uh, contributed to mainly BBC radio programs, mainly Radio Ulster, Radio Two, Radio Four. Those, uh, th- those, those programs. And I, I, I did a a program for the local community television station here in Northern Ireland uh, called Novel Ideas, where I interviewed other authors, and that was a wonderful opportunity for me to get to meet really interesting authors and ask them about their writing process, and, um. And, you know, I really, you know, anyone who was visiting Northern Ireland, uh, you know, for a book fest or whatever, it was an opportunity for me to to set up an interview with them. So I got to meet some and interview some wonderful writers like Paul Muldoon, for example. And, uh, and, and that was great. So, um, in terms of the peace building work, you know, that, that is the work that I did for me, my main work for 30 years of my life, uh, working with youth and community groups. Yeah, I've been, I've worked with literally hundreds of, uh, youth groups uh, uh you know local councils churches women's groups voluntary organizations all all sorts of all over northern ireland i've i've been in every town and village over the years and then um and then i got involved at a in a sort of international level where i worked in other places which were experiencing uh, conflict or were in post conflict particularly in the uh, former Yugoslavia in the Balkans. So in the early 2000s, I did a lot of work there in training youth workers in um, conflict resolution with a team of other people from Northern Ireland sharing our experiences. And then really for the past 10 years or so, I've, I've, I've got involved in um, applying some of the learning that I've had in my career into... Leadership development and executive coaching and team coaching in the private sector, which is a very different world from where I began. Mm. Um, and I spend a lot of time now. That involves a lot of travel. You know, working with global companies and uh, working with um, uh, financial institutions and public sector bodies in different parts of of, of the world, supporting them in in leadership development. The and then the suicide prevention part is, is kind of my voluntary commitment. I've just stood down after six years on the Board of Contact, which is the Northern Ireland uh, mental health counselling charity. And uh I who which runs the suicide prevention helpline in Northern Ireland and that's part of from my own again it comes from my youth when you know I lost my father to suicide and I, I write about that in in my latest book Little House on the Peace Line and that had a profound impact on my, on my life so I'm very attuned to mental health issues and suicide prevention as a result of that because I don't want any other family to go through what my family went through um, so th- th- those are those are some of the you know my. Main interests and passions. I suppose the other area that I've been very involved in over the years has been integrated education in Northern Ireland. So I'm a passionate believer that Northern Ireland will only truly uh, be at peace with itself when our children are educated together. And, you know, it's still, you know, more than 90% of children are educated separately. And so I, I was involved when my kids were young in starting an integrated primary school with other like-minded parents as a volunteer and then a few years later uh, in starting an integrated college for um for basically because there was no integrated education available in, in the area i was living at the time so that's another thing that i'm i'm passionate about as well
0: yeah that's great thanks thanks a lot for sharing that tony and um, i've read all your books, and I think they're fantastic so um, thank you as a as a North Belfast boy, <laughs> I, I found myself um, you know nodding along. I really like the relatable nature of your books. for those who maybe haven't read them, Tony, do you mind just giving a very brief overview of what your books cover and what what sort of things you go into? <laughs>
1: Yes, so they're memoirs. So they really tell the story of uh, my childhood and young adult years. Paper is the first book. I'm twelve years old. It's 1975. The second book is Bread Boy when I'm a teenager. The third group is all Growed up and I'm a, i I'm, I turn 18, go to university. Uh, and then um, in the fourth book, It's Little House on the Peace Line, I'm in my early 20s and I, I take up my first job uh, involved in peace and reconciliation across the, the peace lines in North Belfast in the 1980s. And they are memoirs, so each book I have a slightly different voice because I, I've tried to write them in the voice of uh, of the age that I was. Um, so Paperboy is quite innocent. Uh, Bread Boy is not quite so innocent. All grown up, I'm struggling with really growing up and coming of age. So, um, and I think that I think the what I, what I find people tell me they enjoy about my books is that they're the story of an ordinary child growing up during an extraordinary time. Mm. So, in Paper Boy, which is my most well known and best selling book, uh, I think people are fascinated by the the fact that I wasn't a paramilitary or a police officer or a politician. I was a paperboy. And it's the story of an ordinary child and how a child grows up and tries to make sense of all that's going on around them during a time of conflict when horrific things are happening in in the city in which I'm, I'm growing up. And I think people are very interested in that social history. I find, you know, I do a lot of book tours in the USA and... People there are fascinated because you only really see the headlines when there's a conflict in some part of the world. Um, And that's usually about, you know, the, the, the key actors who are usually political leaders or military leaders or paramilitary leaders in our case. And we don't often hear the stories of the ordinary people. And Paperboy is really a story of how, you know, I had a happy childhood and uh, in spite of all that was going on in the background, it tells the story of how my parents uh, started a youth club, a disco, in a falling down hut uh, in uh, in our church, and you know brought together four hundred kids off the Shankill Road uh, every Saturday night to keep us safe and off the streets, and um, and that was just ordinary families doing what they could to protect their kids. I mean, my parents didn't even regard themselves as volunteering or volunteers. They were just they were just doing something to to, to help the community and to help their own children as well as all the other children in the neighborhood at that time. Um, so I think people are fascinated by that story. I mean, the, the, the wonderful piece of the musical which we're in, we're in rehearsals for at the minute, which I really love is that they've done a beautiful um, translation of the part in the book where I uh, I see the peace rally in Woodville Park in 1976, which was organised by the peace people. And for me, I have a sadness that, you know, in the history of the Troubles of Northern Ireland, it's almost like what the peace people did, all those tens of thousands of women who marched for peace at the height of the Troubles, it's almost forgotten. It doesn't seem to come up much Mm. in in the narrative. It's all about, you know, the political leaders and the paramilitary leaders and the governments and all that sort of thing. And to me, that was one of the most profound moments during the Troubles. I know it didn't stop the violence, tragically, uh, but to me it said something about the heart of the people in northern ireland and and women in particular you know so in the musical there's this beautiful scene um where, where mm. they try to recreate 25,000 women from the mm. Falls Road and the Shankle Road, marching up the Shankle Road, the Falls Road women crossing the peace line, the gates being opened, mm. and walking up the Shankle Road together into Woodvale Park and uh, meeting each other, hugging each other, and singing Abide With Me and mm. Give Peace a Chance, all, all this sort of thing. So um that's the sort of, I suppose to me it's the untold stories of the Troubles. Yeah. I think there are many, many untold stories of the Troubles and and they are the stories of ordinary people who got on with their lives. And actually it wasn't just, we didn't just survive, we actually found a way of thriving and growing in spite of it all. Yeah, yeah, that's great, Tony.
0: One thing, um, so I love reading memoirs in general because it makes me reflect on my own life and my own upbringing um But one of the things that really, I think, stands out to me reading your memoirs is that they're very relatable, obviously, because I'm from um, the same part of the world as you. But it's actually, Tony, in some senses, quite an ordinary story so in paperboy your first book for example you go into quite a bit of detail about how you you went about getting that first job delivering papers to people how people's houses and you reflect on some of the customers that you had and Mm -hmm. what it was like being trusted to collect money or forgetting to close someone's gate and the trouble (laughs) that you might have got in because of that and it's actually they're all pretty ordinary stories or like you have said Quite easy to forget stories in some senses. Um, what was it that made you think I'm going to write about I'm going to write about these ordinary stories? Like, what was it that made you think these deserve to be documented? And I'm gonna I'm going to write about them.
1: Well, I I did a creative writing class, and um, one of the exercises that we did was it's called random uh, stimulation exercise, and you're given five random words, and you had to choose one and you just had to start writing about it the first thing that came into your head so the word i chose was guitar and so i just started writing about my guitar about guitar and i remember my little spanish guitar that i got from santa claus when i was 11 and uh, and i went to uh, lessons every friday night and then i remembered um oh and and uh, I, I used my paper money my paper uh, wages, and paper around wages and my tips to, you know, to pay for the lessons and to buy plectrums and strings and sheet music for, you know, for the songs that I wanted. I wanted to be playing like the Mull of Kintyre and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and, uh, and so I wrote this little story just about, there was one occasion that I remembered Um, I'd been at my guitar lesson and I was, it was a really stormy night and it was dark and I was coming home after the guitar lesson. And um, as I was walking down the street towards my house, uh, there was a, a British Army helicopter overhead, and they had the searchlight on. And sometimes, when they were they were you know looking for what was going on across West Belfast, they would have. Um, but literally shone the light right on you and you would have been completely lit up as if you were in daylight. And that, they did it to me that night. They must have saw me w- walking along with something under my arm they thought might have been suspicious, although it was only a wee Spanish guitar. Anyway, in in the in the shock of that happening the wind blew the gate of my house onto my guitar and cracked it, You know, really damaged it really badly. And my father had to, you know, glue it back together again. I'm not sure what the sound was like after that. <laughs> but um, so I wrote this little story and um, my tutor said that she, she thought it was really good and she liked it and that she suggested I write more of that. And so that's what I did. And um, and after a while I wrote a little bit more and wrote a little bit more. And then I thought, you know the common factor here in this period was I was a paper boy. So what if I wrote just a memoir about those two years of my life when I was a paper boy and um, just the memories of I had of that era and and then I remembered that my father had taken cine film of the Westy Disco and our and we had entered the Lord Mayor's show dressed as the Bay City Rollers and I dug out the old the old cine film and watched all this and that that brought back. So many memories that brought me right back to the 1970s, and um, so so really that's how that's how it all began. I, I began. I had no, I had no real thought that it would ever be published. Um, although when I did the creative writing course, we, we looked at how to get your book published, and I've I sort of followed that advice. But I was expecting fifty rejections and things like that. Um, I didn't honestly expect someone to pick it up so quickly. And so when I, when, when one of the, one I sent it to two publishers and one of them got back to me almost immediately and I was really surprised. And then they, they, they invited me to meet them in Dublin and, and they told me they loved the book and that, that they'd asked a, they'd asked the critic of the Irish independent, the literature critic to look at it. And he liked it. Mm. And, um, and to me, I had no confidence or any sense that what I'd read was any good or was of a quality to be published. So to getting that lovely feedback from a publisher and a and, a, and, a, and a, a book critic sort of raised my confidence. And then as soon as my confidence went up, I couldn't stop. Mm. I was, you know, and I remember that day on the way home on, on the train. I was writing and writing and writing. It just had this spurt of creativity because I'd got this positive feedback that what I was doing was considered by some people to be good. Mm. Um, and it was interesting for me. Coming from where I came from, even though I'd, you know, I, I came from the top of the Shankill Road, an area which is the lowest educational attainment in Northern Ireland. Uh, although I, I um, went to grammar school, I w- went to university, there was still something in my head that people like me aren't writers. And I remember when Paperboy first came out, I still find it hard to describe myself as a writer or an author um for about it took me about six months to get over that so there was something in me about confidence that and uh and being being more um uh accepting that people like me from my sort of background could do this Mm. and um that that was kind of an important turning point for me because i think the more confident i've become as a writer i think i've the better I've become as a writer. I think a little bit of insecurity is really good. So you don't get cocky or complacent. I always, you know, the, the few weeks leading up to a new book coming out, I'm always terrified that people yeah. will hate this one. Yeah. And so I, I always have a wobble. That's probably a good thing because that keeps you wanting to, you know, continue to get better mm. and improve. And I do, I want to, you know, I want to improve my writing, you know, uh, 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 until
0: I've written my last word, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So you document, obviously, over the course of your four books, Tony, this process of you growing up um, during the Troubles and sort of start of the peace process in, in Northern Ireland. Why was it important for you to document your journey of growing up and how have others received that?
1: Um, I suppose the way I see it is, you know, every community is is full of thousands of people. And we all have our story. Mm. And I think the more stories we hear, it builds up a web of stories which gets close to the truth. yeah, And my story is just one story. Um, and uh, so i'm I'm not trying to represent anybody or represent the community or people like me. I'm just telling my story. and and I think, um I love hearing other people's stories mm. as well. And I so I simply wanted to tell my story. And there may be parts of my story that maybe aren't so well known, so there may be fewer published memoirs by people from a working class Protestant background in Northern Ireland in the nineteen seventies. Mm. Certainly when I go to the States that I'm kind of a novelty in that sense. Um and and there may be there may be fewer stories about people with my kind of background in terms of some of the things that I write about that I certainly don't see a lot of on on stage or screen or in books about Northern Ireland. My particular um, my particular background in the Ulster Protestant community. So you know, I I, I was involved in the the orange order or the bands of or that whole orange culture. That wasn't part of my family background, but I was very much involved in the church and I was very much involved in, you know, the, the church youth work yeah. and, um and that, and that sort of thing. And I, I think there's a, I think people are fascinated by that. You know, there's also, you know, the, the, the social class issues are very, Relevant in my book because I'm very aware I'm a working class kid going to middle class school. I also talk about you know I come from the top of the shankel, so we we you know people in the the housing estate across the road called us snob Hill um you know we looked down our nose at the people from the lower Shankle. people in the lower Shankle thought we were stuck up. you know there's this whole divide on on the Shankel road itself, but then when I went to grammar
0: school, realized well, they just thought we were all yeah, <laughs> you know we were all scum over there. <laughs> Tony, I'm wondering if you can um, share with us what some of your most significant memories are growing up, or what are the mm-hmm. the inflection points that you think are um, the ones that stand out in your mind as most significant.
1: Well, th- there are actually two occasions that I've I've written about in Paperboy that are are vivid in my mind that have an impact on me from my childhood. The first is I do remember playing uh, in the fields near my house building the bonfire for the 11th night coming up to the 12th of July and uh, having an argument with some girls, uh, We, you know, we girls, you see sort of same age as me. And I remember I lifted a, a brick and I threw a, a brick at them trying to scare them. But um, unfortunately it hit one of them in the head and uh, she started to bleed. And I suppose for me, that was a really important moment where I had been, you know, I'd grown up being aware of all this violence going on, on around me mm. and, you know, really instinctively hating it. But there I was, in, you know, making someone bleed, mm. um, a, a, like a girl. I made a girl bleed. And uh, I suppose that at that moment I resolved, I felt so guilty about it. I still feel actually guilty that I did that. And I must have been about 10, but um, I did, uh, that was a moment I resolved that I was never going to, Hurt another person like that again, and I, it kind of it kind of um increased my resolve that to be that nonviolence is the only way and that that and and you know I talk about it became the first pacifist paper boy in West Belfast, so that was the first thing the second thing then was again. Going up the fields of the Black Mountain one day, it was the day of the the peace rally in Woodville Park, and you know I I, I could hear the the crowds and hear them singing, and, and just seeing these thousands of women all gathered in the park down below, and as a boy I remember looking down and feeling really hopeful, and I I felt it was 1976, and I thought this is the answer, mm. the troubles are going to be over soon, and we're 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 good people here, and we 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 don't want this. Hatred. We really don't want this violence. And look, we can come together across this horrendous wall and uh, and march together for mm. peace. So that that the peace people inspired me. Um, I suppose the other person you know in, that that inspired me during that time probably the only person that inspired me during the troubles was Gordon Wilson of Enniskillen because to me he's the only voice of forgiveness, the most powerful voice of forgiveness that I heard.
0: Can you say a little bit about, can you say a little bit about him, Tony, for those who might not be familiar?
1: Yeah. So Gordon Wilson, um, and his daughter, Mary were at the Cenotaph on Remembrance Day when the Enniskillen bomb went off. Um, and you know, he lay in the rubble holding his daughter's hand and she died. And, uh, immediately afterwards he spoke in the media very powerfully about forgiveness towards the IRA who had who had planted the bomb. And I, I had never heard someone from my background speak so passionately about forgiveness before. It was usually about revenge and justice. And in and Northern Ireland we hear a lot about, you know, justice and revenge, but we hear very little about forgiveness. Mm. And, you know, even to this day, um, one of the projects I'm involved at in the minute in is supporting an initiative in Rwanda which is around um, a, a centre for forgiveness and reconciliation because the forgiven, the level of forgiveness that's taken place in Rwanda after the genocide there um, is profound um, and in compared to the lack of forgiveness even through our peace process here the contrast is huge. So. I I I believe that forgiveness is something that's missing from the peace process in Northern Ireland and I see it in Rwanda mm. which was much much worse. So so when I think back to you know who who inspired or influenced me during those those times I think of I think of Gordon Wilson. I was doing a book reading in a in a school in Pennsylvania a few years ago and there were 14-year-olds and it was first thing in the morning and the teacher said to me before they started we haven't done Ireland yet. And I sort of thought, well, where am I going to start? <laughs> so, so anyway, I uh, so I read them a little bit from Paperboy, which was more about just growing up, which I thought they'd relate to as teenagers. And then, and then I asked them Would they have any questions. And the first kid was sitting at the back, slouched at the back, and he put his hand up and said, uh, um, um, "Was Bobby Sands a hero or a terrorist?" So that made me set up and think first thing in the morning so i I, I told him that actually i i didn't see I didn't see him as either, um, but I wanted to tell but I want to tell you about my hero of the troubles, because I'm sure you'll never have heard of him, yeah, and I told them all about Gordon Wilson.
0: yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Tony, thanks so much for sharing that. You've mentioned um once or twice now the woodville peace peace rally and this idea of a wall where you lived. For those who might not be familiar with the idea of a wall that maybe divides communities or aren't familiar with the Woodville Peace Rally. do you mind just spending a few moments um, unpacking that a little bit for us? So in
1: 1968, 1969, when the the Troubles first broke out, um, in in, in Belfast, in West Belfast, the streets that had been mixed... Uh, integrated streets, really, where Protestants and Catholics lived in the same street. Um, they became sort of the the interface between the two uh, enemy communities, really, at that stage. As as the as the troubles broke out, uh, and I mean, my my father's family lived in a mixed street mm. um, in that area. But what happened was, depending on which side was the majority, the minority got intimidated out or burnt out. They had their homes burnt and they had to get out very quickly. And so what happened was the British Army put up a, a temporary barrier down the middle of those streets. And really, and they said it was temporary. There's there's some amazing footage of a British Army officer saying, this is a temporary measure. Uh, this is just until things calm down. And of course, you know, here we are in 2018. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the subsequent uh, 50 years, it was uh you know it was raised higher uh it was you know became a concrete wall it became a concrete wall with massive corrugated steel on top and then with another layer on top of that so they became these huge permanent monstrosities that to this day separate communities in northern ireland notably the the most socially disadvantaged communities in northern ireland and um so that what was an originally planned as a as a, a safety measure for those communities it has ended up becoming a huge segregation wall that still separ- separates communities in Northern Ireland and is preventing reconciliation and integration in those areas, also preventing investment and prosperity and employment in those areas. And so today, all of what I would call the Troubles architecture has gone. So there used to be a ring of steel around the city centre where we all had to be searched for explosive devices before we got in to go shopping and cars had to be searched. That ring of steel was removed years ago. People in Northern Ireland can barely remember it. Um, All the big British army uh, uh, barracks are gone. All those sort of big lookout posts, all that kind of military paraphernalia, it's all been removed. However, the one thing that's left are these huge uh, separation barriers, so-called peace walls, separating the poorest neighbourhoods in Belfast. Um, And 10 years ago now, I, um, I wrote a discussion paper proposing a process that would make it safe enough over a period of time for those walls to start to be removed. Now, there has been some progress along that process and the government in Northern Ireland, they have agreed to set a date of 2023, when those barriers will be dismantled. But that's only five years away Mm. and progress has been very slow. So, um, I mean, I do believe they will come down in my lifetime, uh, but um, progress is slow. It's not a vote winner taking down walls in Belfast and Northern Ireland. So um, there isn't a, a huge political drive to make it actually happen. Um, but it is ironic. Am I write. I write about this in Paperboy. I write about the walls going up all around me, and you know, I, 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 I kind of write ironically in Paperboy that, you know, our walls were only going to be up until the troubles were over, not like the Berlin Wall that was going to be up forever. And of course, here we are. The Berlin Wall is long gone. Yeah, and our walls are still standing.
0: Yeah, fifty years later.
1: Yeah. Fifty years later, they're still. And standing.
0: the Woodville. Peace rally, Tony, you said that that was a really significant moment for you as you stood on um one of the hills in Belfast, looking down on it. you were filled with this sense of hope. Can you tell us a little bit about what you saw
1: yeah, so from when you're up the mountain uh, looking down Belfast, you can actually see these walls they sort of snake all along the city there's the the, the, the iconic the biggest peace wall is along West Belfast between the falls road and the Shankle. but if you look. If, if you look across, you can actually see a whole crisscross of them in North Belfast as well. And um, so I remember looking down, and you, so you can physically see these divisions and you can see, you know, you can see the sort of the gate that was opened where the women from the falls actually crossed and the women from the shackle waited for them and, and welcomed them with open arms and then they walked up together. And I had this this image of the park, it was the 70s, so everyone was wearing big, flor- it was the summer, big floral <laughs> dresses with flares, it was very... It was a very colourful sight, and I just remember the sounds of the cheering and the, them singing "Abide with Me." That's what, that's what stands out in my mind. And so I just had this tremendous sense of hope. Um, that uh, I just had this tremendous sense of hope that we as a people were better than this, mm. and that one day it would be over. Yeah, and one day it was
0: over. Yeah,
1: but. It was 23 years after that day. Yeah, I was a, gonna yeah. I was
0: just just about to ask actually in the sort of the 22 or 23 year intervening period, Tony, how did you maintain that sense of hope? It's a it's a long time.
1: You know, I, I I probably I probably slipped into this will never end at some stage during that. I sort of had that hope within me, but there was an element of you know as it just went on and on and on you know, I remember, you know, into the early nineties, I remember thinking this, this, this is never going to end. And people would have said, you know, people would have said that it'll never end. That's what we would have said to each other. Um, so it was, it was more, it was more of kind of a a hope or almost a dream that it, it could end because the evidence all around was that there was no sign of it ever ending. Um, in spite of the, Really good stuff that was happening on the ground, and I was involved in some of that. So you know, many of us were involved in peace building during the Troubles. You know, we weren't we weren't waiting until we had a peace agreement. You know, we you know many of us were involved in doing cross community, cross cultural peace and reconciliation work at the height of the Troubles, and um, and and you know you know doing our best in spite of you know basically all the most powerful parts of society, whether it was the, the politicians or the paramilitaries or the security forces, you know, all engaged in something other than what we were, other than peace, you know, you felt like you were a wee, a wee, um, um, a little fish, you know, going against all the big sharks mm. back in those days. But there was, so I, I, so I had this, this dream that we could have peace, but, you know, as, as time went on, there was this sense of, oh my goodness, this, this is never going
0: to end. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of hopelessness at Mm. times. Mm. Yeah. So Tony, fast forward to today, we're in 2018, um, Paperboy, which is your first book, um, your best selling, your first sort of memoir um, as a young person, first job in North Belfast delivering papers, is being made into A musical, I believe. Yes. Do you want to say a little bit about what that feels like to have your life turned into a musical?
1: I uh, Honestly, I can't quite get my head around it because I'm at the rehearsals every day at the minute. And, you know, I see, I see, you know, the boy who's acting me on stage and he's speaking and he's speaking some of my actual words from the book and he's singing. And and then I see my my family on stage. I see my granny on stage. And uh and then I see my school on stage and um and uh I see the Westie Disco that I taught you know, the US Youth Club on stage and my parents and it you know it it's quite hard to get your head around it, just seeing all of this at times and um and at times it's quite uh emotional mm-hmm. um for different reasons. You know, there there's one song that I actually haven't heard yet. But it's sung by my father and reading the lyrics alone moved me to tears Mm. because it's very much based on who he was Mm. as a man and as a father. It's called No Son of Mine. Um, And he was very much that was kind of his uh, mantra. No son of mine will be doing that. No son of mine will be doing that. Um, And there's another beautiful song sung by my mother at the Peace Rally that I've just been talking about and they're staging that in a, in a in a in a beautiful way. Again, I haven't seen that one yet, but I think it'll feel quite emotional. Um and I suppose I'm also you know that's just for me, but I'm excited because I don't think this has ever been done before. Mm. There's never been a musical uh, set in Northern Ireland in the 1970s that is actually really good fun yeah. as well of have, having some profound moments. You know, it's great fun. Um It's, it's, there's, there's comedy, it's vibrant, it's exciting, it's youthful. Um, and then there's, there's some really quite profound moments as well. And I've never, some of the things I'm watching in rehearsals, I've never seen on or heard on the stage before. So I'm really excited about it.
0: Yeah. Great. And what's, what's next then, Tony? So musical about the first book. Is there any sort of sign of, That coming about any of your other books, or are you planning on writing a fifth book? Like, what's can you share anything about Um, what's what's on your horizon?
1: There's a little bit of chatter about Bread Boy, the next book, maybe going the same route as Paper Boy, but it's early days on that. Um, But at the minute, I'm working on my first novel, my first piece of fiction, and um, so it's set in contemporary Belfast, again on the peace line, contemporary Belfast in today today and it's got a similar tone to Paperboy, in terms of that mix of humour and social commentary. Um, but it's a work of fiction.
0: Mm. Great. And is is there any dates put on put on that Tony, or anything yet?
1: No, I have to finish. I have to finish. Finish. <laughs> you writing have to write it, it first. <laughs> I, I, my I, my my deadline is to is to complete the book by the end of the year.
0: Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. Tony, thanks so much for sharing all about that. I'm just wondering if we can get a little bit more personal now, a little bit more focused on you as as a person, if that's okay, instead of your work. Mm -hmm. Um, What's one thing, Tony, that you would say to the version of yourself 10 years ago, if you could? Like, What do you know now that you wish you knew then?
1: I think I would say... You don't need to push, you don't need to force things, um, just do what you love, do what you're passionate about, work hard and do it really well and good things will, will happen Mm. and, um, don't try to force it or push yourself or push what you're trying to achieve on others. Yeah. That's what, that's what I would say.
0: Great. And if we were to sit down then, say, in one or two years again and do this podcast, what would you want to be true then that maybe isn't true now?
1: I'd love to be talking about the uh, movie version of Paperboy. Wow. Yep. And that's been on the cards for a while. Wow. But it takes a while to get all that to happen. um, And... You know, that it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride now for eight years, sort of the 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 movie version of Paperboy. I would love to be talking you know, rather than you know, to them talk, we're talking about rehearsals for the musical, I would love to be telling you about their filming they're filming the movie version.
0: Yeah. That that would be incredible. <laughs> mm. And if there is a movie coming out, we'll absolutely <laughs> sit down and do this do another version of this of this podcast. I'm interested to know, did you plan to be doing what you're doing now? So did you plan to become an author, um, you know, a leadership coach, a broadcaster, um, a youth worker? Did you plan to be doing all these things when you were a paper boy or a bread boy? Or did you just sort of fall into it and it emerged and you went with it?
1: I would say um, maybe the first part of my life, I kind of, I followed what interested me and what I was passionate about and things fell into place and that, you know, that, that, that's what happened. But I remember on my 40th birthday, I actually did sit down and came up with some goals of things that I I wanted to do. And one of them was to have a book published. Mm. I didn't know what sort of book back then. I didn't know what sort of book it would be. But one of them was that I wanted to have a book published, I think, um, I in my mind, I said by two thousand and nine, and Paperboy was published in two thousand and ten. Um, there are other things on what that I that I kind of imagined for the future. You know, around that time, one was where I wanted to live. I wanted to live beside the sea, and you know, we did. We moved. We moved then when I've, I've we moved to Port Portstewart on the north coast of Northern Ireland um i did have this i did have this vision that i wanted to work at an international level um and so that has that has sort of transpired in terms of the both in terms of some of the, the the work i do in leadership development but also the when i'm doing book tours and speaking at universities and colleges in different countries that sort of thing um so yeah so i would say the first part of my life it just it just happened in some ways um, but, um, from the age of 40, I became a bit more focused, um, about what I, about, about what I wanted to achieve.
0: Yeah. Great. Um, if you were to walk into a coffee shop in Belfast one day and overhear um, a table of people talking about Tony Macaulay, um, what sort of things would you want to hear?
1: Do you know it's interesting because you sometimes actually, you sometimes actually see that on social media. Sometimes uh, you know you stumble upon someone talking about you on social media, and there was one occasion, and I, I, I was really touched by it. Somebody, somebody was, somebody was talking about one of my books, and someone had said, um, um, something like, uh, he he's very he's a very kind person, and he's generous with his time, and. And and I thought that I thought I was I was delighted that someone felt that about me because I would be, you know, people often ask me when I come and speak say in a school or to a youth group or um or a, a senior citizens group, um or or just be supportive on some sort of issue mm. to put, to to give a bit of time and a bit, bit of support to it and that that's important to me. It's always been important to me that I'm making some sort of contribution, um. Voluntary contribution in my life, maybe inspired by what I saw my parents doing way back with the Westie Disco in the nineteen seventies. So I think to, when I when I stumbled upon someone saying that about me, I I, I was I was touched by that, and I, and I thought, well, that'll do me. Yeah. If that's what someone's saying about me, I'd be very happy with that.
0: Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, that's a really nice thing to find. <laughs> Sometimes you don't find such nice things on on Twitter, um, so that's really nice. Um, Tony, I always try and remember to ask this question to all of my guests but sometimes sometimes i forget um if your house was on fire and you know heaven forbid that ever happens family friends pets all get out safely and you've got time to grab one thing on your way out the door what's the thing that comes to mind that you're going to grab
1: it would be um a framed um 45 single of The Last Waltz by Engelbert Humperdinck. It was the single that my father played mm. uh, as the last dance every Saturday night in the Westie Disco. And um, it was also my parents' song. And so it, it was a sign to all the kids that, you know, it's time to go home. Yeah. But it was also a sign, uh, it was their song mm. about their relationship with each other. And so it's that's very precious to me. And, and uh, uh, a friend of mine found it recently and, uh, and gave it to me and I got it framed. And I think that's the one thing. I was going to say my remote control Dalek, but I think that I think I'd let that burn in preference for this precious, uh, you know, 45 single from the 1960s.
0: Mm, yeah, really lovely. A lot of, lot of mm. special memories. I'm sure we yeah, can hear that. Yeah, I always like to try and end then with just a couple of sort of more light-hearted, quick-fire questions, if that's okay, so you don't need to sort of spend too long thinking about them. Um, do you prefer reading or watching telly to switch off? Um, I prefer reading. Great. And are you a beach holiday or an adventure holiday? type of guy um
1: neither more of a, a city you know go and see every museum and uh every historical artifact in the city type of holiday person
0: yeah <laughs> yeah yep. i'm i'm exactly the same <laughs> to be honest um dragging dragging my wife around sometimes reluctantly yes what is your most annoying habit tony
1: uh i bite my nails and i, I was recently in uganda and because of the, you know, that, you know, some of the risks associated with, you know, diseases that we don't have over here, etc. I was really, really good about not biting my nails for 10 days. And I thought, this is it. I've broken the habit, but I've come back and I've got, I've bite my nails
0: again. Straight, in, straight into it again. <laughs> Do you remember the last time you sang to yourself? And can you remember what it was that you were singing?
1: Um... <laughs> Yes, I, I, I'm singing some of the songs from the musical to myself at the minute. I'm, you know, because the, you know, I'm listening to them, and Duke Special he has sent us demos of them, so I've been listening to them, and every morning at the minute, I'm waking up with a different one in my head. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not. I'm not going to ask you to give us a rendition, Tony.
1: And, and the, I'll give you the lyric. Okay, so the one that's going around my head at the minute, which is, is this great song, where it's a it's about my you know my girlfriend when I was twelve years old, and you know and and it, the lyric is something like, um, she's the girl inside my dreams, the one I depend upon. When I look at her, my heart attacks. I want her to be my own Olivia Newton-John.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that tells us everything we need to know about you, Tony, to be honest. Um, okay, one more question, if that's okay. This is the, fi- the final one. What's your favorite thing to receive as a gift? Um,
1: I like um, experiences rather than things. Yeah. So uh, a few years ago, my daughter uh, surprised me at Christmas with a ticket to the National Television Awards. That was brilliant. I th- it's my birthday next week and I've just been asked, am I free on the 31st of August? So it sounds like I'm getting something like that, you know, a surprise, you know, ticket to something or, or, or go to see somewhere. That's the sort of thing that, that I love, you know, and something that's going to create a memory.
0: That's wonderful. Thanks so much um, for giving us the time today, Tony. It's been really fun having you on the on the podcast. I always like to give um, my guests just a moment at the end to um, share with the listeners where they can find out more about you, how they can connect with you on social media, or where they might be able to pick up pick up your book. So I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, so
1: my website is com and uh, all of my books are available in all good bookstores as they say but also online including an audiobook of paperboy on audible and um and i'm on twitter and instagram and facebook as tony mccauley author
0: that's great thanks so much for joining us tony you're welcome it's a pleasure that's it for this week folks we'll have another episode out next wednesday In the meantime, please make sure you've subscribed to the show and left us a rating and a review. You can connect with us over on Instagram or Twitter at Spoke Podcast. Thanks for listening.